two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and I am joined with Jesse Hirsch. He is the president of MetaViews Media Management and a futurist, particularly as it relates to technology and the internet. And on March 15th, he wrote an article on COVID-19 titled, The Learning Curve of Pandemic Preparedness, the informed is an ideal, but not reality. And it was just simply incredible. But the reason why he's here with me today is because he made some bold statements about democracy in that article, and I simply wanted to explore further. Hello, Jesse, and thank you for joining. My pleasure, Richard. Now, I don't want, to, I don't want this episode to be a revisit of the whole article. As a matter of fact, I recommend that the audience read it for themselves. But towards the end of your piece, and I'll be paraphrasing a little bit here, you said the following. There are two key political questions we need to be discussing. What kind of society do we need during this transition? And what kind of society do we want when this is over? Because make no mistake, democracy is on the line here. So before we dive into the questions on how your article relates to open government and open data, I have to ask, and I only ask this question for clarity. Are you suggesting that there is a post-COVID-19 path, albeit perhaps unlikely, that would lead Western democracy towards a Hunger Games or Elysium-style post-apocalyptic world without the zombies? I mean, I, I don't think we have to get too sensational in terms of what that world would be. But I actually think it's quite likely. I think the chances of either the the democracy as we know it being temporarily sidelined or tragically even permanently sidelined are really quite high. And I think that's true for two reasons. On a health reason, I think the extent to which this very much threatens the, the safety and security and stability of society is legitimate. I think the extent to which our healthcare system risks being overloaded and the extent to which our economy risks are crashing to a halt, I think that in and of itself poses a threat to, to society as we know it. But I think the other, quite frankly, is people's faith in institutions. Mm. You know, if you think of the social contract as a kind of imagined relationship exists between individuals and governments or individuals and corporations, I think it's really frail. And I think the extent to which people believe that organizations are competent, that believe that the government can do what it says it does, I think that that may be drawn to question. I mean, part of the reason that people, you know, uh, uh, obey the law or comply and file their taxes is because they believe that if they don't do that, there'll be punishment. But as soon as people start believing that they can get away with that, that mm. there is no punishment, that there is no consequences, that's when you have social breakdown. And my concern is that the lack of preparedness, the lack of responsiveness, the lack of openness uh, uh, combine to really undermine the trust that people have in institutions and government. So... Would you characterize COVID-19 
as a kind of watershed moment in society, kind of like how 9-11 drastically changed the way we travel. It sparked a, a variety of social views like Islamophobia and even caused new laws to be created that took away some of our privacy in return for security. And, and obviously I'm talking about the Patriot Act. I think that this is even larger. I, I oh, wow. agree that it's a, water, a watershed moment. But I think it very much eclipses what we saw in 9-11, eclipses, if you will, the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was sort of looked at as the end of the Cold War. I think what we're seeing is, is a, a, an era-defining event, that, that this really is a, a kind of before and after and a where were you when. And I suspect that, you know, our grandkids will be asking us about what it was like and, and, and how we got through it. And, and you know, just as the Great Depression, I think, defined an entire generation, I think this particular pandemic will define an entire generation, a set of generations. And I think that's why it's so important at the outset that we have a conversation about government, that we have a conversation about public policy, that we talk about the kind of society we want, both in the transition and after, because I think that there is an existential risk to democracy and an existential risk to society as we know it, in part because we're not prepared. And, and you know, we have not uh, either opened government enough or created enough participatory mechanisms to allow people to feel as if they have agency or to feel that they have a say in their future. I mean, really, all, all we have is our media. All we have is social media. And while I think that's a great place to start, I, I question whether it's enough. And that's why I'm trying to provoke these types of discussions. On, on the one hand, I'm trying to be alarmist and say that this really is a, a kind of, you know, earth shattering event. But on the other, it's why I'm encouraging people to think openly, to discuss openly what kind of world they want, because now's really the time when we have the privilege or the luxury to have that conversation versus when the crisis really starts to pick up speed, I think that's when we focus on fundamentals, like keeping our family safe and, and figuring out how we're going to feed ourselves. So let me ask you a question here before we move on to specifically open gov and open data. You, you talked about there's a transition going on. Like what kind of society do we want during this transition? Can you define the transition more specifically? It really depends, because I think the transition will be defined by our collective response to it, okay. in the sense that if governments are able to continue taking action against infection, against the pandemic, against the economic and health effects that will be caused as a result, then this transition could be limited. So if all things go well, if all things go according to plan, then I would define this transition as the attempt to contain and normalize the spread of COVID-19. So that involves creating vaccines, that involves creating tests, that involves creating healthcare capacity so that we can manage society as this virus spreads throughout it. But that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that we don't handle it well and that not only do we see the health effects of this virus spreading through society, but we see economic effects. We see social breakdown. We, we see people basically giving up on the idea that their kids should go to school or that they should go to work. And that's where the transition 
entails not just the spread of the virus or the containment of the virus, but reconstructing society and getting people back to school and getting people back to work. And that if we don't handle this well, when once the virus runs its course and everyone either has it or dies from it, then we still face the challenge of, of you know, how, how do we get people working? How do we get people learning? How do we, you know, ensure that everyone is safe and secure? And, and that's the danger, that if we neglect that, if we defer that, if we only focus on the healthcare stuff and don't also focus on the political economy, that's where the transition ends up being prolonged because it ends up involving reconstructing society as we know it. Well, speaking of reconstructing society, let's shift to sort of the post-COVID-19 world. And those listening to the audience are either members of the open government community and the open data community or are curious about it. So, so my next question for you is, what can we do, those of us who cherish the values of collaboration, transparency, and accountability, that we have a much more compassionate post-COVID-19 world, something that is more on the track of the best case scenario? What can we do as a community to ensure that? I think in short, sell open government and sell democracy to the people in that for, I think, most of the history of the open government movement, it's been very much focused on government people, civil servants, government leaders, policy wonks, people who are already on the insiders group, people who are already aware of the importance of governance and the importance of transparency and the importance of democracy. And, and I think when times are stable, that's a reasonable strategy, that, that you focus on the experts, that you focus on the people on the inside. But now that we're in a crisis, I, I think the challenge for the open government community is to really get the public on side, is to think of open government as a virus and to infect as many people as possible with that virus, because this is when we really need to get people believing that not only do we live in a democracy, but they as regular citizens are entitled and empowered to demand the world and in particular demand the kind of government that they want. And, you know, that's historically rare. For, for the most part, might has been right and people have not had a say on what kind of government or what kind of society rules them. But I, I think we're in a very pivotal moment in history where we need to remember that we're a democracy. We need to remember that government is better the more people who are participating, the more people who are involved. For me, the whole moral or the whole argument behind open government is the more open it is, the more efficient it will be. The, the more open it is, the more responsive it'll be. And the more open it is, the more legitimate it will mm. be. And, and I think that these are important questions because I do feel that people are going to question government. They're going to question society. They're, they're going to question everything because they're going to be cooped up for so long. They got extra time on their hands. They might as well be questioning everything. <laughs> and, and that's where I think we have an advantage. I think the people who believe in open government have a, a, a very infectious idea and I think the more that we spread that idea, the more that we make that idea accessible, the more likely that we're going to get people believing that the only way to deal with distrust, the only way to deal with cynicism, 
the only way to deal with the dysfunction that's being created as a result of this pandemic is transparency, is cooperation, is, you know, instead of thinking that government is just run by professionals, to acknowledge that government benefits from citizen participation and citizen input, which is amateur input and which is amateur participation. And I think it's legitimate in the midst of a crisis to say all hands on deck and many hands make for a lighter load. So let's mm. find ways in which citizens can be involved in the development of government policy or the delivery of government services so that open government can not only uh, be a technological idea, but a, a, an idea born in a crisis that is the best response to that crisis. And I think that involves open government people really talking to their neighbors, talking to industry, talking to people outside of government to really ensure that this idea spreads far and wide. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I adopted this sort of scarcity versus abundance theory of human behavior and that in a world of scarcity, the, the most creative, the best potential out of humanity comes out in a world of, a, of abundance is where we get a little lazy. And I think from a democratic perspective, Western society in general has sort of been, you know, on the lazy, you know, the lazy river, just everything's okay. It's not broken. Don't fix it. But now that we have this presumptively scarcity or this, this democratic deficit, perhaps, people will be much more keen to listening to new ideas because you've been in this space for a long time. I've been in the space for about 10 years. And while we've made some strides, I don't think it has moved as quickly as I thought many people thought it would move, but maybe they'll more likely to, 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 to listen now. To your point about if it isn't broke, don't fix it. For those of us on the inside, for open government people, I think we've believed that it's been broken for quite a long time. That, that the closed, secretive, coercive form of government is broken, that it doesn't work, that it's not efficient, and that there's a better way of doing things. I think now everyone's realizing that it's broken. Everyone's realizing that the old way of doing things, the old way of governing does not adapt to the digital world, and it certainly does not adapt to a crisis. And, and I think that that's where we have an advantage now in being able to say, hey, we, we all see that it's broken. So now's the time to actually be serious about fixing it. And guess what? The open government people have been working on the fix for a long time. And it's transparency, participation, and collaboration. So I, to your point, I think that there has been a complacency that hopefully we can encourage people to, to re rebound from and recognize the, the opportunity, if not the urgency. Because the other reason that I, I framed that essay the way I did was to suggest that if we maintain our complacency, if we maintain our laziness, we're going to get authoritarianism. We're going to get chaos. We're going to get might is right. And, and that's not going to benefit anybody. So collectively, we need to step up and figure out what kind of society we want because the consequence of doing nothing is to see society fall apart, is to see the social contract end, and that is not going to be pretty. So a moment ago, I asked you what the open gov and the open data community should be doing during this time. Now I want to go in the opposite direction. What is something that the open gov and the open data community should definitely not be doing? What should we avoid doing? What should we, what should we avoid saying, perhaps? Well, I think what we need to be careful of, especially in the context of open government, 
is increased unaccountable surveillance. And that I think just as you mentioned 9-11 as a, a kind of watershed moment, you know, we, we take for granted that 9-11 was almost the entire defeat of privacy and civil liberties as we know it, right? I mean, to a certain extent, civil liberties and privacy survived because of the strength of the researchers and activists who fought the Patriot Act, who fought the, the, some of the policies that arose after 9-11. And I think we need a similar stance. I think we're gonna see a similar instance, except instead of terrorism being the mandate for increased surveillance, it's gonna be healthcare. Mm. And you know, just like it's hard to defend terrorism, it's hard to suggest, hey, we shouldn't invest in healthcare or we shouldn't <laughs> invest in keeping people healthy. And yet we should not be embracing unbridled surveillance. We should not be uh, sort of just saying, hey, let's collect all the data and we'll figure it out later. While I do think that strategic and surgical health-based surveillance is valuable, just as strategic and uh, surgical surveillance of terrorism is, is valuable, I don't think that we should, we need to be careful about thinking that open government is big brother government or that open government is data-driven mass surveillance government, right? Those are things that are going to be very tempting because of the potential and the arguments we're going to hear in terms of their healthcare applications. Mm. And I think we need to be critical. We need to be skeptical. We need to recognize that in some cases, yes, more surveillance and specific surveillance will be helpful to keeping people healthy, but that doesn't mean we should abandon privacy and civil liberties. And I think that's where the open government people are, are, are worthwhile remembering the democracy part of open government. Privacy is essential to democracy, and I think that that's a very careful line people are going to have to navigate. It's, um, it's very interesting you bring that up because I'm personally working on, on a on a series of video that deal with that in particular, because as an open data advocate, people are often shocked that I refuse to have, for example, a Google home or an Alexa in my home and refuse to have a Fitbit or do the 23andMe to find out why my ancestry is, because I don't believe in giving my health data to a third party that has no regulations or even laws around, um, how that data or that information should be kept. But there's a lot of people in the open government and the open data community that love the convenience. They love the novelty of giving up their health data to a third party for either the convenience or the information that it gives you. So I guess my question turns into in terms of we're already doing it. Do you think it's too, do you think we can bring back those people? I, I suppose is my question before we go over that, that, that precipice. I think that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, unfortunately to your earlier point about laziness and complacency, it usually takes tragedy for, for those people to, to wake up, for those people to realize what's at stake. And I'm not sure we're going to see the problem with privacy. The problem with surveillance is the tragedy is, is usually delayed or deferred. It's not yeah. until years later that, that you really pay the price for, to your point about ancestry data or genetics data, that you get discriminated against because they've decided you're going to get cancer in your future and therefore they're going to charge you a higher insurance premium. I'm, 
those consequences don't happen until it's too late. But I, I think it's why I find that these, this now is the time for open policy discussions. Now is the time for us to talk about worst case scenarios and talk about scenarios. I mean, that, that's part of why I enjoy being a futurist because it, it gives me the liberty to imagine different kinds of futures and then get into what kinds of policies might enable or mitigate us seeing that kind of future. And I think that's where we, we should have these types of debates. I think that's where within open government circles, this would be a very potentially productive, if, if not relevant debate, but it's not easy. And I think that's where we have to remember that open government, the, the, the key part of that phrase is government. It doesn't mean open Richard. It doesn't mean open Jesse. It, it doesn't mean open citizen, right? Citizens still deserve privacy. Citizens still deserve to, you know, uh, be free from that type of state-based or market-based surveillance. And I think that's one of the dangers when we talk about open government that, that you know, we forget that it's the powers that be that should be open and not necessarily the people who are subject to that power. We're the ones who deserve that right to privacy. And I think that's often forgotten when we rush and, and champion transparency, which I very much believe in, but I think individuals should have the power to determine when and where they share that data. And to your other point, it's why data protections are so important. And that's why I think public policy is important because we will need health-based surveillance. We will need to collect all sorts of health information. So we're going to need stronger privacy laws. We're going to need stronger oversight. We're going to need stronger controls on the organizations, whether public or private, who employ that data. And that's more reason for open government. That's more reason for democracy. That's more reason for citizens having human rights. And, and I think that's why this is such a complicated discussion, but one that we ought to be having sooner rather than later. Earlier, you mentioned that, that you love being a futurist and you're very talented at it. And right now is the time that the community should really be discussing new policies, new regulations, maybe even laws uh, that need to be introduced like this. We don't have that, you know, five years, six years down the road, say we, we made a mistake. We should not have allowed this. So are there any policies or regulations or laws or even tools, maybe like I can also see the open government and the open data community and the tech and the civic tech community starting to develop tools for this new reality. Are there any of those policies or tools that you think need to be created right now? Or maybe that you, in your research you saw are being created right now? So there are a, a range of tools emerging, which are really quite inspiring and, and offer tremendous potential. But before I address that, let me begin by saying that I think, and, and I feel this has been true for a number of years, maybe most of my lifetime, but I think the most important policy in this context, the most important issue that I wish more people were talking about is electoral reform. Mm. Because I think electoral reform is, 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 is the, the crux. It, it is the bottleneck in that insofar as we elect idiots, then we're going to get bad government. And our current system elects idiots. It, it elects people who don't have the skills, who don't have the capacity, who don't have the courage to, to engage in the difficult policy conversations and the difficult government uh, uh, conversations that need to happen. So I think the biggest thing we could be talking about right now, to go back to 
you know, my hyperbole about a society in transition and what kind of society we want after is how do we elect politicians? How do we decide who gets to decide? You know, how do we govern ourselves literally? Because I feel that our current system, our first past the post system is useless and broken and, and, and a big part of the problem. So I really feel that our, our first question is how do we elect people or nominate people or come up with people who are legitimate and able to help us deal with this crisis in a democratic manner? And that's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I just put that out front because I think that is the biggest issue. It, it, to your, sorry, well, go ahead. No, please. I keep interrupting you. Please continue. Well, it's a conversation. Conversations are about interruption. The, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But I will interject for a moment then. And I will challenge you a little bit on that premise. Please that, do. Um, I do agree with you that electoral reform is definitely required. First past the post has run its course. But there is, I'm a huge fan of George Carlin. Huge, huge fan of George Carlin. And you had mentioned that the system that we have right now elects idiots or something along those lines that you mentioned a moment ago. George Carlin has this quote. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit again here because I don't remember it verbatim. But in, I think it was in 1990 in, in, in one of his specials, he's like, people say politicians suck. But where do you think these politicians come from? They come from American schools, American businesses, American churches. You know, they're, 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 it's us. <laughs> We're the ones who are stupid. And we need to, to come up with a better system of governance more than I think that, that is just as an important of a question as it is how we elect those individuals because research from Samara Canada has shown repeatedly that parliament, the dynamics inside parliament are very broken. I read a great book by Steve Pakin a number of years ago called The Dark Side of Politics and it sort of, sort of shows the conniving behavior that even within their own parties takes place. So while I agree with you, electoral reform is definitely important. I don't think it will necessarily fix the problem. See, I also am a, uh, uh, instead of a Karl Marxist, a George Carlinist. <laughs> uh, you know, and I love his skit about stuff and why do we need yeah. all this stuff? And, you know, that, that certainly influences me greatly. But I disagree with the idea that society is stupid. I, I feel that rather than the best and brightest, we're getting the greediest, the pettiest, the most mm -hmm. narcissistic as our politicians. And I know a lot of people personally in my life who would be fantastic politicians, who I would love to be in government. And the fact that they're not is to me a huge part of the problem. Again, we could spend an entire podcast talking about this. I will briefly say that I personally would ban all political parties I would create a system that was based on problems and solutions rather than ideology. So you have a problem, you run for office based on a solution, you get elected to implement that solution, and then once done, you're kicked out of office until you come up with a new solution that you run and campaign on, get elected and implement that solution. So I think that there's a huge range of ways in which we could reconfigure our democracy to limit stupidity and to limit the corruption and greed and pettiness that plagues it. But that's a whole other conversation for a whole other day. Okay. Let me come back to your, your other question about tools, because yep. that's where I am 
uh, uh, cautiously optimistic. And that right around the world, and this is something that I have been researching and writing about, there are really interesting tools emerging that facilitate community decision-making and facilitate the interaction between governments and citizens to really expand participation and expand transparency and, and really use digital tools to make the democratic franchise as efficient as possible. Uh, one of the most uh, famous or most uh, effective has been something called Decidim, which is uh, Catalan for to decide that was developed out of Barcelona, but is now being used by governments all around the world. And it's one of many. There, there are other tools like it that, you know, an, a, a, another is called democracy.earth, which uses blockchain technology to, again, facilitate decision making. There's quite a range that I, I think uh, really offer us a, a tool set or at least a template because most of these tools are open source. So even if you don't like the way the tool works now, you could change the tool to adapt it to work in your community. So th these are the kinds of things that I think give the open, the open government movement a lot of momentum and a lot of credibility in that, you know, we don't have to say, hey, these are just ideas, because there's now actually tools. We can actually point to these tools, and we can point to governments using these tools. And in the case of Barcelona, as one of the, the global leaders, the benefit has been tremendous. The increase in citizen participation, the increase in the legitimacy of government decisions, because they're born from government, from, sorry, from citizen participation, all of that is really quite encouraging. And I think either A, gives us opportunity to experiment, or B, gives us reason to believe that the industry of open government, if I were to put it that way, is starting to grow in capacity and credibility that suggests that governments themselves have enough support structures in place to really take these types of initiatives seriously. You mentioned the industry of government, and I think sorry, the industry of open government. And I think that might be one of the problems compared to other sort of international movements, whether it be climate change or anything along those lines, is that there is not an industry. There's no, there's no one backing it. There's not a large organization that's investing millions of dollars in propagating sort of open government and open data values or initiatives. And, and I think that's one of the problems because a lot of the, a lot of that work is left for, for policy wonks and it's left for academics and researchers who are not necessarily in the business of marketing something or putting it out to the public to make it sticky. So it, it, it's sort of that, that question, like how do you create that industry? How do you make it in a way profitable if if at the very least not a moral thing kind of like what climate change and Al Gore did in those early 2000s it became a moral crisis um, do you think maybe COVID-19 is going to be that moral crisis that we can use it could absolutely I think that's my point about thinking about open government as a, a virus if we spread it across the public because I think there's two ways to create what you're describing you know, one would be the government creating it, right? So imagine, you know, that there was an election uh, in the midst of this crisis because the government 
lost the confidence of parliament and had to have an election. And imagine that election was entirely online. And imagine, you know, hell froze over and I won that election. So one of the first things I would do as prime minister, as the government, was to fund open government. And as soon as the government opens the taps, well, you better believe that Microsoft and Deloitte and Accenture and all the other government professional services firms, they would all start marketing open government in a nutshell. Because there certainly are people within those firms who believe in open government. They're just not in power in those firms at the moment. But if the government opened up the taps, well, you better believe they would all start marketing open government because they'd want (laughs) access to that money. So part of it is a horse versus cart scenario. And that's where the government certainly has power through the public purse in that as soon as they change procurement policies to emphasize open government, well, that industry is going to emerge rather quickly because that industry will just pivot and go after the money. But a whole other scenario, right, a, a second way that this could happen is citizen pressure right, is if citizens started to demand open government, which would then force the government to open up the taps, that's what would then create the industry. So it's really an issue of demand. Now you have experts, now you have policy people and technology people going, hey, this is really the most efficient. This is really the path of innovation, right? And, and that's the kernel, that's the kind of seed that then plants the idea. And the next step is for that to spread, whether that spreads through government or whether that spreads through the public. Once that spreads far enough and the demand is there, the industry will rise to meet that demand. So it is a bit of a, you know, horse versus cart. What came first, the chicken or the egg? And that's where you really need the virus to spread because it could be Microsoft. I mean, I think Microsoft, for example, as a company that historically long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, hated open source and saw open source as the root of all evil. Now they describe themselves as an open source company and are firmly committed to supporting the open source economy and industry. Well, it wouldn't be much for them to come to the logical conclusion that, hey, open government is the next wave of uh, uh, innovation in society and that Microsoft wants to make it happen with their cloud and all their tools and their GitHub. And so they all of a sudden start marketing and promoting open government. It could happen. It's just a matter of the financial incentives to be in place. Let's stick to, you mentioned citizen demand a moment ago in terms of the need for open government and open data. Like I said, I've been in the space for 10 years and I've come up with a whole bunch of different ways to, to make open government, open data more digestible. I did the short film, I've done memes, I've done fables. I did a whole bunch of different things and it's just sort of me on my own kind of deal. And yet nothing that I've really done has been sticky and nothing that I've seen from the community at large. I mean, we, we even have the Open Government Partnership, an international body which has been somewhat effective, I will say, in, in their efforts. And yet the message is not landing for whatever X reason within the general public and by not even the general public, I will say even public servants and politicians themselves. I don't know how many times I've had to sort of educate public servants and politicians on open government, open data as recently as a few months ago. 
what do you think we're lacking in our sort of the selling of open gov and open data to make it viral? I think you're asking a billion dollar question and, and certainly anyone in any policy space hits up to this question where they believe that they have an answer. They believe that they have knowledge that's very valuable and they just don't understand why nobody else sees that value or they don't understand why people don't see it the way they do. So on a surface level, it's a translation question that it just hasn't been translated sufficiently in a way that other people see that same value. And part of the problem here is I would argue the vast majority of the population is alienated from government. They have nothing to do with government. They don't understand government. Maybe they fear government or they just ignore government. But to them, government is just not part of their life. And that's a problem. That, that's part of why democracy, I think, is at risk is because people just don't see the value of it because for the most part, their lives have moved on. They, they, they don't see the relevance. Facebook is more relevant to their life than the Canadian government or their provincial government. And, and that is, I think, a broad problem. But you're also describing the, the kind of challenge that any content creator on the internet faces. That, you know, you might have a YouTube channel where you're uploading funny pieces for two years, and then all of a sudden you do a random goat video, it goes viral, and then all those people discover all the content you've been making for the last two years, and they love it. So it often works in that way, where you're just toiling on a back catalog, all of a sudden you say something which you didn't think would be popular, but it turns out it was very popular because it strikes a chord, and that then generates interest on all the things you've been doing for the last two, five, or 10 years. I mean, that is often the pattern for content creators in the age of the internet, because there's lots of talented people out there who are getting tens of views instead of thousands of views. And that's just a consequence of there being so many options and so many choices. I think when it comes to open government, it's partly an issue of translation, but it's partly an issue of relevance. People just don't think of government anymore. They don't think government's relevant. But I think that does change in a crisis. I think that as people get frustrated because they're running out of money, because they can't figure out how to apply for employment insurance, because they can't figure out how to apply for government benefits, I think all of that will potentially increase people's interest in open government. But at the same time, I think the specter of authoritarianism, I think the specter of totalitarianism may also increase people's interest in open government because they'll be looking for alternatives. They'll be looking for ways in which they can preserve their human rights. They can preserve the openness of society. And that in and of itself may increase interest and the relevance of open government as a concept. Well, you're absolutely right. I ran for political office a handful of times in the mid 2000s. And I remember vividly, people don't pay attention to politics more than during an election. And what we have here is everyone's eyeballs are on the government right now. So we do have the attention span of people on government, not during an election, which is relatively rare. And yeah, we should make full, full use of that opportunity. Well, and if, as I suspect, government falls flat on its face, and is overwhelmed by the sheer dysfunction and incompetence that exists in the federal civil service, 
I think that too will cause people to demand openness and transparency. Because I don't think that the government was prepared for this crisis. And I am not convinced that the government is responding to this crisis effectively. And I think that that breakdown will upset people greatly. And I think the argument that the response to that breakdown is greater transparency and greater collaboration with citizens will be a very powerful argument. No, this, is, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation, Jesse. We're, we're running out of time here, but before I close uh, the episode, I just want to give you an opportunity real quick. Is there anything that, any question that I didn't ask you yet or anything that we haven't talked about that you feel should be mentioned at this point? Well, I think the one thing that, you know, maybe you and I as open government people kind of take for granted, but that is worth putting on the table because it is becoming a bigger part of our world is just disinformation, propaganda, and outright lies. In that we are living in a world where, you know, the U.S. government, for example, their first response to this crisis was to lie. Mm-hmm. right, was to, was to put out absolute nonsense. And, you know, while we're lucky that that was not the initial response of the Canadian government, I, I'm not sure regular citizens know the difference in that I think the cynicism that exists towards government is made worse by the culture of lies and disinformation that has become our media, that has become social media. And I think that's more reason for open government that I think that the, 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 the disinformation, the propaganda, all of that makes it harder for people to know who to trust. It makes it harder for people to figure out the knowledge that they need to rely upon. And I think governments make the mistake in thinking that they're going to be trusted just because they're the government, even if they are making an effort not to lie, even if they are making an effort to say all the right things. And I think that's why the government itself uh, will find uh, opportunity and benefit in embracing open government, because they're going to find that people aren't going to trust them no matter what they say, that that trust has to be earned, that transparency is part of how that trust is earned, and that as our information ecosystem becomes more polluted by disinformation and lies, that open government is going to be the only antidote, that open government is going to be the only way to let people make up their own minds Mm. because it'll be so easy to lie and it'll be so easy to spread rumors and nonsense that that the informational practices of our government will be crucial to maintaining the health and safety of the population because there'll be so much nonsense out there, which is partly why people made a rush on toilet paper, even (laughs) though that was totally ludicrous. (laughs) <laughs> but it was a symptom of disinformation that plagues our, our current world. Oh, yeah. And on a related note, I remember seeing an exchange on Twitter between, I think it was Jack Dorsey of Twitter and Elon Musk. And Jack was asking, like, what can we do to make Twitter better? And Elon Musk's uh, answer was, identify the bots. Like, you, you may not want to necessarily, like, uh, delete the accounts or suspend the accounts, but at least when we look at an account, we should know whether or not we're speaking to an individual or to a bot, um, which I but, thought was a really sort of clever uh, take. Except that you wouldn't be able to do it. Because what happens, right? Now, it, it, it all comes down to where are you going to tolerate errors? 
would you rather that some bots not be identified or would you rather that humans be identified as bots? Because either way has consequences. If you err on the side of letting some bots not be identified, then that can further erode people's trust because they will make the false assumption that all bots are identified. So therefore bots that aren't identified will be even more trustworthy mm. because the platform is drawing a line between what is a bot and what isn't a bot. Versus if you allow for humans to be identified as bots, which is gonna happen no matter what, then you're literally dehumanizing those people and you're silencing them, if not punishing them, if not exposing them to more punishment <laughs> because you're making the mistake of calling them a bot. Because I will tell you quite honestly, Richard, I struggle every day to determine whether a human is a human or a bot. And I mean at the grocery store, not on Twitter. <laughs> right? Like it is not easy to determine whether humans are automated or aren't. Here we are in the age of almost self-driving cars. And I'm already questioning what kind of idiot is in operation of that vehicle. And are they really thinking for themselves? So I, I hear where Elon Musk is coming from, but to defend Jack, I don't think it's possible. I don't think we can determine whether a human is a bot or a bot is a human. We, we need to be as transparent as possible so that people can choose for themselves. Like you were saying earlier, this type of conversation could stretch on for hours and hours. <laughs> this is not the Joe Rogan experience. It's not that kind of podcast. But, maybe it should become one, but go ahead. But this is my point as to why I think people should be having these conversations at their dinner table, you know, in their living rooms, in, in their virtual workplace. Because I, I, I think you and I quite enjoyed having this chat. And I think that these types of conversations can and should be enjoyable. And I think we need a million of these conversations to bloom right across the country. I think we need people to be asking themselves, you know, what kind of world do we want to live in right now? What kind of welfare do we need? What kind of government support do we need? And what kind of world do we want to come out of? You know, what kind of health policies do we have after this? What kind of work policies do we have after this? And, and I think if everyone takes the time to have these conversations in their households, in their communities, in their virtual workplaces, that that's how we'll get a, an informed citizenry. That's how we'll get a better democracy. And, and I think what you and I've just demonstrated is that can, it can be really quite a bit of fun and really quite entertaining to entertain all of these big ideas. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And we'll just sort of <laughs> keep eating that elephant as, as uh, <laughs> hopefully others will join us. But um, we're wrapping things up here. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, you have a brand new newsletter. You have a MetaViews. You have something called the Academy of the Impossible. You're also a public speaker. There's a lot going on in your life. Um, do, you mind us a bit, do you mind telling us a little bit about those? Sure. Although I'll start by saying, I guess I'm now an ex-public speaker. There won't be any public speaking happening for the foreseeable future. So, you know, I, I, I can no longer claim to be that kind of professional, unfortunately. But maybe the opportunity will emerge for that career to return. I do write a, a newsletter called MetaViews, which very much covers the subjects that we just discussed today. 
It's a paid newsletter because especially now one needs to be able to eat, but it very much gets into this types of, these types of subjects and is meant for my own community to really be a place where we can get into smart subjects in a very deep but also accessible way. And I, I, I really think of my newsletter not as a product, but as a service that I, it's kind of like an intellectual club, uh, uh, an, an intellectual intelligence network so that all the people who are part of my intelligence network get to learn from all the other people who are part of the network and help each other sort of be smart. And then the other thing that I, I've been running for the last three, few years is something called Academy of the Impossible, which I think you first encountered in version one, which mm -hmm. was a storefront in Toronto where we did classes and events. And then we iterated into version two where it kind of went underground and we partnered with an underground restaurant to hold secret events and salons and uh, uh, sort of where version one was public events, version two was private events because I was really concerned about the signal to noise ratio. Mm. And now version three of the Academy of the Impossible is a rural location, which due to our current pandemic may not be immediately accessible to most people. So it'll probably end up being a lot of YouTube content where it's really about teaching people about food sustainability and permaculture oh. and you know what it means in the era of the internet to be living on the land in that i now live on 25 acres in lanark county i've got chickens i've got goats got a horse maybe another horse on its way probably get some rabbits you know it sort of uh i've I sort of came to the idea that the future is rural before this pandemic happened, although this pandemic is very much reinforcing my belief that the future is rural. And so the Academy of the Impossible is really the reflection of that, in that it's designed to teach, in particular, city slickers how to prepare themselves for life in the country, because I suspect sooner or later we'll all want to be living in the country. But, you know, pandemics aside, uh, it really meant to fuel my own uh, passion for learning. And in this particular circumstance, uh, really recognizing that uh, rural living is a learning curve that has no finish line. I saw your interview with Steve Pakin when you were talking about the Internet. And while I do agree with your perspective, I think many of us, including myself, I would love to live in, in sort of northern Ontario or in the, the reaches of rural Canada, but I do need access to my broadband. I do need access to the internet. The good news is that's happening and quite rapidly. So there all are already a bunch of options where you could move into a rural community and get incredibly high speed internet. And the places where that is not presently true, uh, it, it's happening. Uh, basically because communities are organizing amongst themselves to make it happen. That's exactly the kind of place you want to live, quite frankly, because it means that your neighbors and your community is engaged, is uh, committed to the internet, and not going to put up with the nonsense that comes from our telecom establishment. <laughs> Isn't that true? Well, I want to thank you dearly for taking part in this, in this interview and episode and being so insightful like you usually are. Um, and I also want to thank 
the audience for listening and and please leave a rating or a comment on or how to make the podcast even better or if there's any guests or stories that you like to hear and uh, until next time let's make it open <laughs> <laughs>